Good morning, everyone. We'll get started with our Sunday school. If you'd all come forward, take your seats. If you haven't gotten a handout, there are some in the back still, looks like. Uh, we're continuing. This will be our last lesson on the incarnation. Um, so we'll continue with that series today. And before we get started, I will start us off with prayer. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day that you give to us to rest and to worship you and to be in your presence. Lord, would you open our uh, open the eyes of our hearts to understand your word, um, to, uh, to more fully grasp onto our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, would you help us to understand uh, this uh, lesson today on, on his incarnation, and would you strengthen our faith and our hope and our love through it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, if you remember, uh, maybe three weeks ago now, I did a lesson on Christ, uh, the finite man. So I was talking about Jesus's human humanity, his human nature, and I referenced this passage, Hebrews two, and I like I really wanted to stay on it for longer that morning, but I wasn't able to. Uh, so when I was trying to figure out what to do for this last lesson, Pastor Tim suggested I sit in Hebrews two for a while, and that that was. A great suggestion. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to sit in Hebrews 2 um, and specifically look at what it has to tell us about Christ's incarnation in relation to eschatology. And of course, eschatology means the study of last things. So we're thinking about how Christ's incarnation uh, informs our view of the last things, of his, of his second coming, really. I um, mean, we're going to see that in Hebrews 2. Um, the book of Hebrews is really a letter, uh, and the letter is actually a written sermon. That's probably the best explanation for it. Um, we don't know who the author was. People often suggest Paul. Um, some people have said Barnabas. I, I, even some people say Priscilla, which is interesting because he refers to himself with male pronouns. Um, but we don't know who the author is. We don't know who the audience is. It's called Hebrews because most people um, accept that it was written to Jewish Christians uh, because of the level of detail given from the Old Testament and the temple sacrificial system. That's not necessarily the case. It's not the case that, you know, Pastor Tim's preaching on Romans. That's not because we're experts in the book of Romans. That's just not necessarily how it works. Um, but I'll stick with that. It's probably written to Jewish Christians. And the best thing that we can tell about the audience from the book is that they are under persecution. Um, and some of them, because of the persecution, because of the pressure, the cultural pressure, uh, they are neglecting their faith. They're neglecting the church. Um, and so the, the author, really the preacher, I'll call him the preacher of Hebrews, he really is exhorting his congregation through this letter to hold fast to the faith that they had at the start of their walk with Jesus, um, and to not neglect the church, to not neglect Jesus. Um, and he does that in a variety of ways, but one of the ways he does it is by comparing Jesus to Old Testament figures in order to show that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament figures. And by doing that, he shows that if there was judgment for neglecting or ignoring the Old Testament figure, then there's even greater judgment for neglecting or ignoring Jesus, who is greater than those Old Testament figures. And he does this by opening the book with the angels. So he compares the son, which is Jesus, to the angels, and he shows that Jesus is greater than the angels. Um, and, and, and then in chapter two, uh, the first five verses, um, I think maybe first four verses, he makes the point that, uh, you know, 
it's it's a it's a accepted tradition, especially in the New Testament. It, it kind of assumes this that the Mosaic law was actually given through the mediation of angels. Um, so in some fashion, the angels were giving Moses the law um, and giving Israel the law. They were obviously angelic messengers throughout Israel's history. And so in Hebrews chapter uh, two, verses one to four, he makes the point that there was great judgment that we see in the Old Testament when Israel uh, disobeyed the messages that they got through angels, and there will be even greater judgment if you disobey the message that we get through the Son, through Jesus. And so that's, what, that's where we pick up our passage. We're picking up in verse 5 of Hebrews 2, um, and we're, gonna, we're going to see kind of how this continues uh, through our passage, but specifically in relation to how the Son became man. Uh, so, the, the first verse of our passage, uh, uh, verse 5, he says, he says, for he did not subject the world to come, about which we are speaking, to angels. So he continues this comparison between, the, between uh, mankind or the sun, between uh, that and angels. And he says, we did not, uh, he did not, that is God, did not subject the world to come about which we are speaking to angels. And this uh, opening of our passage introduces an idea that might be foreign to us at first, um, but the idea is that mankind had an eschatological goal prior to the fall. So when God created mankind, uh, when, when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he had a goal to reach. He had an, eschat he had an eschatology. Uh, and Gerhardus Voss, who's commonly called the father of Reformed biblical theology, uh, he made this insight, and I'm paraphrasing him, uh, but it's that eschatology precedes soteriology. Again, eschatology, study of last things. Soteriology, study of salvation. So uh, last things precede salvation, because really salvation is a means to an end, means to the end of eschatology. God saves us in order to bring us to his goal for us. He saves us to put us in the new creation, right? Um, and we can see that even in the Garden of Eden. God had the same goal for creation before and after the fall. So not only does eschatology precede soteriology for us, you know, God has a goal for us and then he saves us to get us to that goal, but also just in the broader redemptive history, uh, there was an eschatology before salvation was necessary, Adam had a, a final goal to reach before he needed salvation. Um, Adam and Eve were not created in their final state. They were in a testing period in the garden. But God set a final goal before them. They were being tested while they were in the garden. They weren't supposed to stay there forever in a static, unproductive bliss. That's the popular image of Eden, that they were supposed to stay there, sitting on their hammocks all day, doing nothing, um, and that was supposed to be paradise. This even shows up in Tolstoy's War and Peace. I thought this was really funny when I read it. Tolstoy said, biblical tradition says that the absence of work, idleness, was the condition of the first man's blessedness before his fall. And of course, that's just not true at all. Man was not made for idleness. We see this already in Genesis 2. Man was to work and guard the Garden of Eden. But we also see it in Genesis 1, that when God created man, he blessed him and said, fill the earth and subdue it. That means spread all around the world and rule the whole world. That's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to do those two things. A lot of things that are assumed, a lot of cultural um, uh, products that need to be made in order to spread around the whole earth and rule it. 
But that's what God told man. And Hebrews 2 provides a valuable insight that man was not simply commissioned to rule the world to come in a static state. Uh, rather, he, he was not commissioned to rule the world in a static state, but in its final state. Uh, God had a goal for the world, and man was to rule that. So man was not just to uh, fill and rule over the world as it was as God created it, but he was to fill and rule the world um, in a consummated state. We see this in verse 5, as I've already read. For he did not subject the world to come about which we are speaking to angels. Did you catch that? It was, what, what was the world? What, what world was it that was not subjected to angels? He doesn't look to the past. He doesn't say he didn't subject the world before the fall to angels, but he looks to the future. He says the world to come. And of course, that's, that's you know, that, we, that goes by many names in the New Testament, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. So when you think of the world to come, when you think of the new creation, that is what God created mankind to rule. That's what Hebrews is saying. Uh, in other words, primeval man had an eschatological goal. Before the fall, before man needed salvation, God had a goal for creation. Creation was meant to be consummated, and mankind was meant to rule over the consummated creation, the world to come. So there was an eschatology in the Garden of Eden. And the preacher of Hebrews supports this argument from the Old Testament in verses 6 to 8. So I'll read verses 6 to 8 now. He says, but someone has testified somewhere saying, who is man that you are concerned about him or the son of man that you look after him? For a short time, you made him lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You subjected all things under his feet. And as it turns out, someone somewhere is Psalm 8. I'm not sure why he refers to it that way. But it's Psalm 8, and Psalm 8 is a creation psalm. It's really like a commentary on Genesis uh, 1 and 2. Not really Genesis 3. It doesn't have the fall too much. Um, but it's really a commentary on God's act of creation. It praises God as the king of creation, and it marvels at the mystery that God created humanity to be kings of creation under him. And so that's what Psalm 8 is reflecting on. And the preacher looks at this passage and he notes that in order to subject all things, he left nothing that was not subjected to him. And that's just kind of obvious. If all things are subjected, then nothing is not subjected. Um, in other words, Psalm 8 tells us that God subjected everything in creation to mankind. Nothing was left outside of man's rule. He appeals to Psalm 8 to show us that God did not subject the world to come to angels, but he did subject it to mankind in general. And we're, that's what we're thinking here. We're thinking in man, of mankind in general. Humanity was meant to rule the world to come. All things were subjected to humanity in general. But the author of Hebrews goes on to reflect in verse 8. And this is the first thing that we probably think of when we read Psalm 8. He says, But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And this is the obvious tension that we have when we read this beautiful picture of creation. We don't see things this way. There's a beautiful picture where man's, man is ruling as servant king under God, who's the great king of creation, but the world around us doesn't match that beautiful picture. Creation is not consummated. Mankind does not rule over all things. And so we see that God had a goal in mind for humanity and for creation, but that goal has been frustrated, and it's obvious. 
We can see it all around us. Nobody needs to tell us that we aren't there. We don't see this picture around us. But why don't we see all things subjected to mankind? Right now, I'm just kind of filling in the assumptions that Hebrews uh, has. But of course, the answer is the goal of creation was frustrated by sin. Not all things are subjected to humanity because humanity fell into sin. Mankind failed in the vocation that God set out for us. Remember earlier I said that Adam in the Garden of Eden was in a period of testing, um, and if he passed the test, then he would have gone on to fulfill the goal that God had for him. He would have ruled the world to come. Um, He would have filled the earth and subdued it. But Adam failed the test. He disobeyed God's law by eating the forbidden fruit, and so he disqualified himself from being a servant king under God. And because God's chosen ruler for the world to come had disqualified himself, the world to come was left without his ruler, and so it was postponed. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 19. He says, creation waits with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the world was subjected to futility because mankind's fall into sin left the world without its God-given ruler. We don't see the, the new creation because those who were supposed to rule it are not yet revealed. They've fallen into sin. They've disqualified themselves from that position. And so creation waits for its rulers. We don't see the world to come because those to whom the world, uh, because those to whom all things were subjected failed. When Eve was tempted, Adam stood by and allowed the serpent to rule over them. Adam was set in the garden to guard it, so he should have crushed the serpent's head. He should have guarded the garden from his enemy, but instead he simply watched his wife be deceived. And instead of condemning her for her sin, he joined her in sinning. And so both Adam and Eve, to whom all things were subjected, subjected themselves to the serpent. And the serpent led them into sin and its consequences, which is death. And death is really the biggest sign of creation not being subject to man. When we're looking around the world and we can see, you know, we don't see the the new creation, we don't see all things subject to man, the most obvious thing is death. Wild animals, which should be subjected under man's feet, attack and kill people at whim. Natural disasters wipe out thousands of people at once. Disease ravish the population. When we look at the world... We don't see things subjected to mankind. Rather, we see mankind at war with creation. And yet we shouldn't despair when we see that things are not subjected to man. It should make us hope for the world to come and make us to keep looking for what we do see. This is what we don't see. We don't see all things subjected. But what do we see? This is what the preacher of Hebrews does. He goes on in verse 9. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see Jesus, who for a short time was made lower than the angels, who because of the suffering of the cross was crowned with glory and honor in order that by God's grace he might taste death for all. This is beautiful Christ-centered preaching at its best. And this is the best example that we have of Christ-centered preaching in the Bible is the book of Hebrews. He shows us the goal that God had for creation and then he reminds us that we don't see that goal fulfilled but then he immediately shows us Jesus. And that's not, that's not a cliche Sunday school answer. His point is that in Adam, mankind failed in their vocation, and, uh, 
And so God's goal for creation has not been attained, but Christ picked up the baton and brought man and creation to their goal. We might not see mankind ruling the world to come, but we do see Jesus. Christ came into the world with the same purpose that Adam was given to bring the world into its eschatological reality. Look at how the preacher uh, goes back through Psalm 8 in light of Christ's coming. Uh, So this is uh, in verses uh, 10, or no, this is still in verse 9. He goes back through Psalm 8 in light of Christ. He says that we see Jesus, who for a short time was made lower than the angels. That's exactly what Psalm 8 said about mankind. And in Psalm 8, it meant that angels are above humans. They're sort of in between humans and God in terms of, um, you know, their rank. They dwell with God in heaven. They're closer to the divine glory. That's kind of what it meant in Psalm 8. Uh, but, in, but Hebrews interprets this in light of Christ uh, to mean that even though Jesus is the Son of God who is greater than angels, that's the point that he made in chapter 1, even though he's greater than angels, he was made lower than angels for a short time in the incarnation. In other words, through Christ's incarnation, he put himself in the same place as Adam as being lower than angels, the same place that God put mankind generally in Psalm 8. And he says, because of the suffering of the cross, he was crowned with glory and honor in order that by God's grace he might taste death for all. Remember in Psalm 8, this this referred to the original goal that God had for mankind. He was meant to have all things subjected to him and to be crowned with glory as king of the world to come. That's what we don't see. We don't see mankind crowned with glory because he's the ruler of the world to come. But when Hebrews interprets this in light of Christ, it means that Christ was crowned with glory and honor because of his death on the cross. Not because everything was subjected to him, but because he subjected himself to death. In other words, Christ obtained the original goal of humanity by becoming crowned with glory and honor through his death. And not only was the son put in the same place as Adam, But he did what Adam failed to do. He was perfectly obedient to God, even to the point of death on a cross. And because of that, he obtained the world to come. He obtained the new creation. And the last thing we can note about verse 9 is the purpose of Christ tasting death. It says that he tasted death for all on behalf of others. He was incarnated, made lower than the angels. He persevered through the suffering of the cross, and he was crowned with glory on behalf of others. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for his people. Psalm 8 shows us what humanity in general was meant to be, but they failed, so the Son became human in order to achieve this goal for them. What we've seen so far tells us a lot about the purpose and necessity of the incarnation. This is a question that some people raise. Would Jesus have become incarnate if Adam had never sinned? And some theologians say yes, Jesus would have become incarnate even if Adam had never sinned. Uh, Karl Barth, as far as I can understand, was one of these theologians, but he is very difficult to understand sometimes. Um, But it seems like Karl Barth saw Christ's incarnation as a solution to the distance between God and man caused by nature rather than by sin. Uh, But Herman Bavinck, uh, who's who's a very great Reformed theologian, he wrote Reformed Dogmatics, he responds to this type of view. He, he wrote a little bit before Bart, but he was responding to this type of view, and he argues that it has pantheistic assumptions. Pantheism is everything is God. All of creation is God. And uh, 
Bavink basically says that claiming the incarnation was necessary pre-fall means that God was unable to relate to his creation without the incarnation, and vice versa, that man was not able to relate to God without the incarnation. Um, in other words, when theologians claim that Jesus needed to be incarnate before the fall, they do so because they're trying to close the gap between creator and creature. They've misunderstood the purpose of Christ's incarnation, thinking it was something deficient um, in God and man without it. They, they think that something was deficient in God and man without the incarnation. And of course, pantheism, the whole point of pantheism is to close the gap between creator and creature, to have some overlap. Um, and that's, that's what this view tends to do. But it, of course, it's obvious from what we've seen only in Hebrews 2 that the biblical doctrine of the incarnation rejects the idea that Christ would, be, would have become man without the fall. If there was no fall into sin, Christ would not have become incarnate. The purpose of the incarnation in Hebrews 2 is clear. It was to bring humanity to the original goal with which God created man. Adam could have brought humanity to that goal, like Psalm 8 says. Adam could have brought humanity to the new creation. That was his, that was his uh, vocation. That's what God called him to do, commissioned him with. But in the world to come, uh, but rather in the world around us, it's obvious that Adam failed. And Genesis 3 clarifies how Adam failed. Uh, and in response to this failure, Christ came into the world in Adam's place. And so the purpose of the incarnation shows us its necessity. Before the fall, the incarnation was not absolutely necessary. If Adam had, had not failed, then Christ would not have become incarnate. But consequent to Adam's fall, the incarnation is absolutely necessary. Not simply to undo Adam's fall through salvation, but to complete Adam's vocation and bring the world to come. In other words, not only to save us from our sin, but to bring us to our eschatological goal. And so God's eschatological purpose for humanity is ultimately the reason Jesus came into the world and his redemptive work is in service of that. So Christ wouldn't have become incarnate if, the, uh, if humanity hadn't fallen because humanity would have reached their eschatological goal if they had not fallen. But because they fell, Christ needed to bring us to that goal and he did it through his redemption. Uh, and so the following verses expand on what we've already seen. Uh, verses 10 to 18 expand on this idea. <clears throat> First, we see how Christ attained the goal of humanity through the incarnation. In verse 10, uh, he says, It was fitting for him, for whose sake are all things, and through whom are all things, and leading many sons to glory, to perfect the founder of their salvation through suffering. Uh, some, uh, you know, some non-Christians might be quick to say that it's uh, unbecoming of God to become man, uh, unbecoming of him to humble himself, uh, to become human, to make himself lower than even angels. But here the preacher of Hebrews anticipates that and argues the exact opposite. He says it was fitting that Jesus become man and suffer. It was fitting that Jesus become incarnate and that he die. But why was it fitting for the founder of our salvation to suffer? That's because the many sons whom he is leading to glory suffer. That's what he says. In order for Jesus to save those who suffer, he had to suffer like us. And uh, if Christ 
was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of the cross, then we can look forward in hope to glory when we suffer. We can look forward to glory when we suffer because that's what Christ did too. This is what I mean. Christ was conformed to our image in the incarnation. He became man. He became like us in every way. He was conformed to our image in the incarnation. And we are conformed to his image in sanctification as we suffer. And ultimately in glorification when we're crowned with glory like him. Uh, He continues in verse 11. For indeed, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. When he says they're all from one, I I personally think he means from one nature. He's pointing to the fact that they're both human. Our sanctifier, who is Jesus, and we who are sanctified are both human. We're both from one nature. In other words, by becoming a weak and frail human, Christ became the perfect savior for weak and suffering humans. By taking on our human nature, our sanctifier became our brother. By becoming like us in every way, our God, the son who's greater than the angels, became our brother. He became equal. And he goes on to quote scriptures, proving his point that Christ calls us his brothers and sisters. I won't go through each of these verses, but he proves uh, his point that Christ calls us his brothers through various scriptures. But this is his point with these scriptures, that after elevating Christ above the angels in chapter 1, the preacher now makes us equal to Christ since we are his brothers and sisters. And therefore, he's also elevating us above the angels in chapter 2. He already did this in uh, chapter 1, verse 11. He calls the angels ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So angels are servants of those who are to inherit salvation. And he does this again in in 2.16. He says, for surely he is not concerned with the angels, but he is concerned with the seed of Abraham. Jesus did not become incarnate as an angel, whatever that would mean. He didn't take on the likeness of angels. He didn't save angels. He came to save mankind. He came to save the seed of Abraham. Those who believe like Abraham believed. So if you trust in Jesus as the founder of your salvation, if you believe in him, then you are his brother and sister, and he has elevated you above the angels since he will lead you into the glory of the world to come. And you could make this argument possibly from uh, 1 Corinthians, I think, 6, where, where Paul says, do you not know that we will judge the angels? He says, do you not know that we'll judge the angels? We'll not only judge the world, but even the angels. I think it's possible that Hebrews is also pointing to the fact that All things are subjected to mankind. That includes angels to a certain degree. So in the world to come, when mankind is in their proper state, when the sons of God have been revealed and creation is consummated, mankind will rule over angels in some way, will judge angels. He continues in uh, verses 14 and 15. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, similarly he also partook of the same things, in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and in order that he might release them who by fear of death through all their lives were subject to slavery. Again, we see how Christ saves. He saves us by taking on our flesh and blood, our human nature. And we see why 
Christ took on our flesh and blood so that he might die. And through his death, he might destroy the devil who has the power of death. He couldn't have died without a human nature. And so he takes on human nature, becoming like us to die. And this is how Christ brings many sons to glory. Remember, uh, I said earlier, the most obvious sign that not all things are subjected to mankind is death. Death makes it really obvious that the creation and mankind are at war with each other. Uh, Because of Adam's fall, the creatures are not subjected to us, beginning with the serpent whose temptation brought death into the world and, and expanding to all beasts, natural disasters, famine, disease that afflict us. But Christ, the second Adam, undoes the first Adam's failure by conquering death on our behalf, and he does so through death. How does Christ defeat the devil through death? Well, it's because we are slaves to death because of sin. That's what he says. Through, we were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is the punishment for sin, and so as long as we're guilty in God's sight, we deserve death as punishment. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died the death that we deserved. He took our punishment away by suffering it for us. His death was our punishment. Therefore, we are no longer guilty in God's sight, and we no longer deserve punishment. Therefore, the power of death is taken away from the devil. Since we are no longer guilty, we no longer deserve death. We've been freed from death through Christ's death. And so the devil is destroyed. His power is taken away. We have nothing to fear. The guilt is gone, so the punishment is no longer deserved, and the one who has power over the punishment is destroyed. The one who, whose temptation brought death into the world, his power is taken away. And the last section of our passage we'll consider is uh, verses 17 to 18. He says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to God in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, we see that Christ saves through the incarnation, being made like us. And we see why, so that he can make atonement for us as our merciful and faithful high priest. A priest is a human who represents humans before God. So a priest has to be like the people he's representing. He's representing his people before God. So in order for Christ to be our priest, he had to be made human like us. He had to be like us in every way to represent us to God. And again, he made atonement for our sins through his own death, and he had to take on our flesh and blood in order to die. This verse just reiterates that truth. And again, in the final verse, we see that Christ saves us through the incarnation since he suffered when he was tempted. And we see why. So that he is able to help us when we are suffering in temptation. The preacher of Hebrews later calls Jesus our sympathetic high priest. And that is exactly what he's talking about here. Jesus suffered like we do. So he's able to be merciful when we suffer. He's able to help us when we suffer. He was tempted like we are. And so he's able to help us when we're tempted. He's compassionate with us. He knows what we need when we're tempted, and so he can help us. And so in conclusion, to kind of wrap all of this up, in in Hebrews 1, we're introduced to the Son of God, who's greater than the angels, and through whom God has spoken to us, 
And this is in order to motivate us to obey the word that we have received through the Son. It's greater than the word given by angels with greater punishments for disobedience and greater rewards for obedience. And then in Hebrews, in in chapter 2, we're introduced to the sons who are brothers of the Son. Our eyes are drawn to the future and we're reminded that mankind was commissioned to rule the world to come. Our eyes are drawn to the past and we're reminded that God had a goal for mankind and creation before the fall. And then our eyes are drawn to the present and we realize we do not yet see mankind ruling over all things. But immediately our eyes are drawn to Jesus who fulfilled the original goal of mankind through his incarnation and death. He was made lower than the angels by becoming man, but he was crowned with glory and honor through his suffering on the cross. Therefore, he is greater than the angels, even in his humanity, since he rules the worlds to come. Even at present, he does so in the, in the midst of his enemies in heaven. But when he returns, he will destroy all his enemies, and he will bring down the new Jerusalem from heaven. And when he does so, he will lead many sons to glory, those men and women whom he is not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters. Since he became like them in all things, sharing in their flesh and blood in order to destroy them from death, uh, to deliver them from death and the devil, atoning for their sin. So Christ came not to help angels, but to help human, to help mankind. And therefore, redeemed humanity is also greater than the angels because we share our human nature with the Son of God. He redeemed his people from their fall in Adam, and he will bring them to the fulfillment of humanity's original goal. That is, he will lead them to glory in order to rule the world to come with him. And that's really what I'm trying to drive home with this lesson, that Jesus didn't simply come to clean up our mess. He came to carry us all the way across the finish line. He didn't just come to undo the mess that Adam made. He came to do what Adam failed to do to begin with. He came to fulfill Adam's original goal. That goal that God put for humanity in the beginning to rule the world, to come to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule the consummated creation, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to bring that into a reality and to bring us into the new creation. And therefore, we must not neglect Christ, nor scorn all of the great things he has done for us. But instead, we must look to Jesus, our Savior, trust in what he has done for us in his incarnation, hope in what he will do for us when he returns, and seek his help and consolation when we are suffering and being tempted. Because if we're being led to glory by a Savior who is crowned with glory through his suffering, then we can be assured that we will be rewarded with a crown like his after we bear a cross like his. We will suffer if our Savior suffered, and we will be glorified just as our Savior was glorified. The founder of our salvation became like us in his incarnation in order to make us like him in our sanctification and ultimately our glorification that we might inhabit and rule over the world to come. And so that's my final lesson on the incarnation, on eschatology and incarnation from Hebrews 2. Are there any questions? We have a bit of time. That's usually uh, not how I do things, <laughs> but there's some time for questions. We have a mic that we'll, um, we'll bring up. Oh. Christians. All redeemed humanity, yeah. 
Yeah? Yeah, we, I mean, when Paul says uh, the sons of God uh, who are to be revealed, uh, creation awaits the, ex- the eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. That's, that's us. That's Christians, redeemed humanity. Yeah. Any other questions? Dan? Um, when you were mentioning Bart in terms of uh, his arguing that the incarnation was necessary, even if Adam hadn't fallen, you, you sense a sort of Catholic nature slash grace motif going on there that nature intrinsically isn't enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, there was something deficient in mankind even before the fall. Um, you, you can point to like, you know, the super added grace type idea um, or whatever, but mankind in some way couldn't relate to God fully even before the fall. And yeah, that's very similar to the Roman Catholic idea that mankind needed an added grace before the fall in order to stay righteous. Any other questions? Good couple of questions so far. It's okay if we don't, we can just hang out for the rest of the morning. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, thank you for hanging with me through the incarnation. If you have any questions about any of the lessons on incarnation or this one, you can talk to me afterwards if something comes up. Um, Yeah, thank you.